The CNBC app, global market news in one place. Customizable sections and personalized alerts. Stocks tracking, interactive charts and market insights all in your hands. Stay connected, stay informed. Download the CNBC app today. Uh, happy Friday, everybody. Welcome to Scorebox. Uh, these are your headlines. The S&P 500 closes at a fresh record high for the 11th time this year, whilst consumer spending falls more than expected in January in a potential early warning sign for the US economy. The Nikkei, uh, well, like it's 1989, the Japanese benchmark moves within striking distance of levels not seen since the peak of the bubble era. Coinbase shares jump over 14%. That's an extended trade as the crypto exchange swings to a surprise profit. The CFO telling CNBC the recent jump in Bitcoin played a major role. We've seen net $4 billion of inflows into Bitcoin ETFs. This makes it one of the fastest growing ETF categories that we've ever seen in the history of ETFs. And U.S. Vice President Kamala Harris touches down ahead of the Munich Security Conference as she looks to reassure worried allies that Washington will keep to its defense commitments. I've got to be honest, I've been at CNBC for the best part of a quarter of a century and I still get as excited now as I did then at the start of my career here, when I look at data and I look at market reaction, just, just, just go through this with me before we show you anything at all. Nice big blank wall as well. The Dow Jones for the week is up 0.3 of 1%. Pfft, nada. Not very exciting, is it? The Nasdaq is down 0.5% for the week. Nothing really exciting. The S&P is 0.06% up for the week. So, you know, it's just been a really quiet nothing week. That is absolute nonsense, by the way, because it's been a, an incredible week for data. Look at this. We're going to show you some data now, and I'm just going to talk you through this because I think it is fascinating. I think it's fascinating about the data, the extrapolation of that data by the market, and what the market is hoping to see from data. Just take a look at this. You all know this, but I just want to go through it just quickly with you as well. Inflation print early in the week. The inflation print was so hot, everyone was terrified about it as well. What was it? On Tuesday, the CPI up 0.3% when it was expected to be lower than that. The handle was higher than expected and the markets took it really badly. We'll come to that in a few moments time. Then yesterday, we have the retail sales data, which was quite underwhelming by some degree as well. Weaker than expected in January. Downward revisions for December. Downward revisions for November. The control series, important part of GDP, also fell sharply. So we saw by many measures the sharpest declines in retail sales since March last year. So really quite concerning about the US economy and the US consumer. So you've seen hot GDP, uh, hot CPI, weaker retail sales. And in the meantime, Better than expected for many people, jobless claims. Now, I know there were nuances in the jobless claims figures there, but the fact of the matter is it declined again to 212,000. How did the markets react to this? So you've seen potential stagflation. How did the markets react? Look at this. Look at this. This is where we started. We're virtually the same place despite this absolutely wild ride. That, by the way, is your CPI print. And then you've got your retail sales. Well, hang on, retail sales, really appalling data. Great news, says the market. It's going to force the Fed to do something. But the Fed can't do something if this figure is too hot. It needs to see it lower. 
So that's the, what the equity markets have done. If we have a look at the treasuries as well, you'd think that the treasury yield would have picked up aggressively, wouldn't you? Clearly, you know, with the higher inflation. Uh, well, actually, it's virtually the same as where it was. What have we got here? We've got 4.26% at the moment. It started last Friday's close was 417 so what have we moved up? Nine, ten basis points? Nothing really. It was six overnight, by the way, when I had my data from our brilliant team in the United States. Well, the dollar. Yeah, of course the dollar would have rallied on the back of, uh, on the back of that hot CPI, wouldn't it, actually? Well, you look at the dollar index. It's barely moved on a week. It's mildly higher. So you've got a situation where the market has completely and utterly said, actually, the net net of the data for this week is we ain't going to move, actually. We're going to just keep the market flat, or in fact, slightly higher. In fact, today, the market's called higher in Europe. So, you know, there's a positive tailwind there as well. So what are we saying? Let's just recap. Worse than expected underlying economy with the retail sales. It's only one month, but it's not, is it? Because we had the November and December. Hotter than infla uh, expected inflation, and more Americans are keeping their jobs, which is defying expectations, because if you look at the tech sector, it's carnage at the moment in terms of the job destruction. And yet the markets is OK with that? Isn't that extraordinary? Extrapolation from all that data. Arabile, do you want to chip in on this one? Yeah, certainly, Steve. I mean, just continuing the narrative, perhaps, to talk about the U.S. economy not necessarily being as hot as some may think, actually. Of course, the, the top-line figures, when it even comes to the jobless numbers, uh, as you've been speaking, the uh, claims numbers as well. Just interestingly enough, when we start off with those stunning jobs numbers, gain, of course, that we had even seen with the NFP of 353,000, according to the BLS household survey, then, full-time employment has actually been flat since the summer last year and it even fell last month a rise in part-time work in individuals with multiple jobs may be the actual element that is propping up uh, a lot of this market on the other side you could talk about uh, average pay then as well the atlanta feds wage growth tracker has been on a downward trend since march so real wages may be rising in aggregate but not all jobs uh, and geographies are rising in uniform. Another aspect to even look at as well, consumer spending. Consumers have been said to be the ones who have actually been uh, propping up a lot of the U.S. economy. Um, it was surprisingly strong last year, but it did have a sense of, let's call it rocket boosters then, uh, underneath it in the form of pandemic savings as well as government support. But according to Capital Economics, those are being depleted now, um, and it is close to depletion, in fact. So the resilience of the American consumer will be increasingly <coughs> tested, according to I, this. I, 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 I thought that myself. I thought that all that pandemic extra money was yep. gone. But average hourly earnings are going up. As, again, I, <clears throat> I take on board your mixed data uh, from the BLS as well. <clears throat> Excuse me, I'm getting all emotional about it, my throat. No, but, but the fact of the matter is, the fact of the matter is, Americans are keeping their jobs. Americans yep. are repairing their balance sheet with their salaries as well. you can see retail sales. That it, it isn't necessarily easy despite keeping your job. Which is very interesting. So what is happening to living um, standards as well? But it, I just think it's absolutely amazing that Americans are keeping their jobs. Yep. We keep hearing that they're under pressure financially, and yet... If they're invested in the equity market, they've got a record S&P. Yeah, so there's sure. another reason why sure. their household savings or household balance sheet is improving if they own equities, which has a large data, amount of them do. Has data ever been mixed as this then? Yes, it has. <laughs> yes, it has. But, but I mean, it's just a fascinating period in yeah. history. There's no yeah. doubt about it. Definitely anyway, US yes. colleagues. Indeed, they'll be speaking uh, with the Atlanta Fed President mm. Raphael Bostic later today. Tune in for that interview. It's at 5 p.m. CET.
Let's head on over Far East now. The Bank of Japan Governor Kazuo Ueda says the central bank will examine its ultra-loose policy measures once its uh, price goals have been met. His comments come a day after Japan's economy unexpectedly slipped into recession, losing its spot as the world's third largest economy. Now, Ueda also said he expects real wages to rise slightly and that he wouldn't comment on short-term yen fluctuations. Well, let's take a very quick look at the Asian indices and where they are currently trading. As you can see, uh, the, uh, the Hang Seng uh, having a bit of a recovery, 2.7% higher, but it's the Nikkei that's getting all the interest as well. Um, look at that Nikkei move, up 84% in the last five years. Well, what's going on there and how is it defying gravity? Well, let's get to Jesper Cole, who is expert uh, director at Monix Group. Uh, Jesper, you and I <clears throat> are of a vintage when we remember last time it was up here. Uh, what's different this time, my friend? Oh, what's different is very simple, is that uh, actually the fundamentals are good in the sense of that corporate Japan this time around has real earnings. Um, in 1989, at the peak of the bubble, corporate Japan had no earnings, but a lot of price earnings multiple. There was a real bubble, there was a real hype, but no fundamentals. This time Japan is all about the fundamentals. It's about the fundamentals, yes, but and everything about Japan which I love in many ways, is supersized. So we've got a supersized rally of the last five years, 84%. We've got a supersized debt to GDP. We've got a supersized implosion of the currency as well. We've got a supersized low of interest rates that just defies every other G7 and G20 economy and what they've been doing with interest rates as well. It's just the dynamics scare me because all the numbers are so big in each direction. No, which is wonderful. You know, now you forgot out that also Japan has supersized its uh, profitability. Uh, you know, corporate profits are basically up six times, um, you know, over uh, the last decade. So it's not a lost decade. Corporate Japan has really sweat. And the nice thing is that, you know, here in Japan, nobody believes it's for real. Like the skeptics are the locals. Mr. Mr. and Mrs. Watanabe isn't buying it. It's the rest of the world that says, whoa, Japan is interesting. I, I spoke to uh, the central bank governor, the former central bank governor, the legendary central bank governor about, I must have been, honestly, Jesper, about 10 years ago, we were at a G7 in Dresden, I remember. Uh, and I said to him, how long have you got to fix the balance sheet with your ageing population and before the postal savings get brought down and then people start taking money out of the JGBs? And he said, well, we'd like to get there by the end of the decade. Well, that was five years ago, his timeline as well. Nothing's happened. The debt to GDP is bigger. Um, the interest rates are zero still as well. Why are, and I hear what you're saying about the profits, and, and that's a great reason why the decay's up. But why are none of the other longer-term huge concerns beginning to even touch the sides 10 years after I had that conversation with the central bank governor? But this is, you make the interesting point, because they are actually coming through, because ultimately the best way to explain the yen's weakness is indeed the fact that Japan's elite, you know, the Bank of Japan, the Ministry of Finance, is actually quite concerned in the sense of that, wow, we're going to have to do everything we can, you know, to generate, you know, as much growth as possible. And as a result of that, Japan stands out as the only country where this year we're getting an income tax cut. And of course, Japan stands out as the only country where the central bank is going to maintain its zero interest rate policy.
Yeah. Uh, Jasper, good morning to you. I mean, can the corporate governance that is happening in uh, Japan sort of set it up for a long-term uh, story here? And how much of that will be tested by the yen when, it, when that weakness subsides? Um, very interesting. I think that you make the important point that, you know, what's different this time around is the fact that private sector Japan, the corporate leaders, they're the ones who are taking the action. It's not the Bank of Japan. It's not the Ministry of Finance. It's not some knight in shining armor politician. It's corporate Japan that says, right, we've got very lazy balance sheets. We've got too much cash on the balance sheet. We're going to have to do share buybacks. We're going to have to buy companies. Um, you know, We're going to have to invest, which is very, very exciting and hasn't happened for 30 years. And, you know, it really is the reality of the macroeconomic conditions with the aging of society, with the zero interest rate policy, with the high fiscal deficit, now forcing the younger generation, the next generation of corporate leaders to say, right, we can't wait for the government. We're going to have to do something to get our own act into uh, our own act together. And that's exactly what's happening. And that's why you invest in Japanese shares. Mm, very interesting, actually. Then, uh, how much of this weakness, though, is also because of the, or rather the strength that you're seeing in the equities, because of the, the weakness out of China then? Yeah. And look, I mean, I was uh, invited to, uh, you know, one of the monster investment institutions in America uh, late last year. And so I asked them, well, what do you want me to talk about? And the guy said, well, just bring one slide. Japan is not China. Yeah, very interesting, actually. Then uh, it, it one might say that 89, however, was that, uh, was that historic bubble territory that we were in. I mean, we're not at bubble territory now, though, are we? No, I don't think so. And I mean, you can, you can do the academic and analytic thing and point to valuations. I mean, price earnings multiples of 15, 16 times are hardly bubble territory. At the psychological level, um, you know, it's very, very important. In 1989, Japan couldn't do wrong. And it was the Japanese who were full of themselves. They thought they really owned the world, that they could take over the world, that, you know, Toyota and Sony were the best companies and they would beat anybody. Remember, the stock market capitalization in 1989 in Japan was larger than the stock market capitalization of the United States. There was a lot of hubris then. Now there's no hubris. In fact, all the bears are here in Tokyo. Yeah, I mean, you and I, we remember the book as well, don't we, Jesper? Um, Rising Sun, Michael Crichton, that showed a lot about the tensions between the US uh, and indeed Japan. And if, if a younger, younger audience hasn't read it, they should read it. It's a terrific read. The film's not too bad either. Now, in, in all seriousness, though, if the Bank of Japan is able to raise rates at some stage, I know it's a big if because, I mean, they've you know, defied expectations so far. What happens to the flow of money into the equity market? Will people actually want to find a home in a bond market that actually attracts a better yield or actually will it not have any effect on the stock market? Uh, I think it will have very, very little effect. And the reason is very simple. I do expect that the Bank of Japan will begin to normalize interest rates, get away from this emergency zero interest rate structure by maybe raising rate by 
10 or 20 basis points, but it's not a tightening. Real interest rates in Japan are going to continue to stay negative. Nobody in this country, whether it's the Bank of Japan, whether it's the Ministry of Finance, nobody wants to destroy demand. Japan doesn't have a big inflation problem. It's a question of can we afford to normalize interest rates and money markets? I think they can, and that will actually be a positive because Japanese banks will finally be able to actually make some money on their net interest margins. Uh, okay, so the more so that's an interesting argument. Yes, but we could have this one many times. Uh, higher interest rates, higher bond yields is good for equity. I see where you're going with this one with the NIMS. Okay, okay. Final question. Um, I know the answer because I've got it in front of me there. Where do you believe the Nikkei could go in the medium term? Uh, look, I mean, I've been for the last, uh, you know, 12 months, I've been, you know, to Japanese retail investors, I've been saying, look, you know, uh, the Nikkei at 55,000 in 2025 is not an absurd forecast. Think about it. All you need, you need about 30% of earnings growth and you get there. And it's certainly right to expect that Japan's top companies are going to be able to generate 30% earnings growth over the next 24 months. Yes, but it's been a real pleasure speaking to you. Um, I, I let into a little secret. My producer, Katie, said, oh, she, I love Jesper. He's such a great commentator. And you were again. So that's great. Uh, Jesper Cole, nice to see you, sir. There you go. Highly recommended. Uh, Jesper Cole, expert director at Monex Group. Arabile. Well, coming up on the show, real estate stocks rallying then in the US. That's after CBRE hints then that the worst could be over for the commercial real estate sector. We'll take you through that story, brick by brick. Plus, Sylvia, oh, there she is. She's in Munich as the city security conference gets underway amid worries over the future of the NATO alliance. And it's another busy earnings day here in Europe. Don't miss our first on conversation with Swiss Re CEO, Christian Momendala, coming up at 9.15 CET. Ambition to me is about doing better. I think ambition creates a pathway. The best advice I can give someone starting off a career is don't have a career, have lots of careers, try loads of different things. Talk to people and put your ambition out there. I don't feel that I've hit peak ambition because it's a learning journey. CNBC is where ambition meets opportunity. What does living ambitiously mean to you? Hear it from our CNBC anchors, reporters and global business leaders on CNBC.com. Welcome back. Now, Terminos shares plunged almost uh, 30% Thursday. That's its worst day in more than two decades in a session which wiped more than a billion dollars off its market cap. This after Hindenburg Research announced that it has uh, taken a short position in the company, alleging irregularities in its numbers. Now, Terminos says its board of directors fundamentally refutes the report in which Hindenburg alleges the firm secretly funded the purchase of its own software. Terminar says the report contains factual inaccuracies and analytical errors together with false and misleading allegations. Fourth quarter results are due on Monday. Euronext's revenue came in almost 4% higher in 2023 at uh, 1.7 billion euros, while reported net income rose by 17% amid a positive interest rate environment. Listing revenue increased to 220 million euros as the company reported 64 new listings, 
making it the top European listing venue of the year. And Seeker's net profit fell more than 8% in 2023. That's despite a 7% gain in net sales and an almost 60% jump in operating free cash flow. The construction chemicals firm says it expects sales to increase as much as 9% in local currencies this year. We'll go through the numbers with the CEO, Thomas Hustler, at uh, 9CT. Don't miss that interview. It's a first on CNBC. And CBRE surged more than 8% after the firm said the worst is over for office leasing in a fourth quarter earnings report that beat revenue estimates by more than half a billion dollars. Net income coming in just under $480 million. That's up from $81 million a year earlier. That result spurred sector peers higher with JLL and uh, Cushman as well. Cushman and Wakefield, should I say, surging in Thursday trade. And all but one of the components of the S&P Real Estate Index closing in the green. This would definitely have been uh, a good news to a sector that, of course, has been asking itself whether uh, occupancies would actually be on the rise, of course, around major cities in particular. Um, just even last week, having seen New York community uh, Bancorp shares uh, characterize a bit of that turmoil with exposure to the sector, even having uh, Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen saying, well, we need to be a little bit cautious about exposure to the sector. So some good news, I suppose, but the overall recovery may still take some time. Um, for sure, all of the above. Look, um, the fact of the matter is, the, the news is, a company that makes money from office leasing and real estate says we're at the bottom and we're going to recover. So I, I appreciate that everyone's Printing got their view. Their own future? Well, everybody comes on this channel and everybody speaks to the media with their own book. Of yeah. course, that, that's only human nature. Yeah. You and I probably come at things from our own book, from our years of experience of whatever we've done in our lives. But the fact of the matter is, this is a sector where deals have plummeted mm. because there is a reluctance of the sellers to admit that the pricing has changed dramatically. Whenever we do see deals going through, whether it's New York real estate, whether it's CRE, whether it's office space, or, or a combination of the above as well, the deals are being done at stunning discounts. We also have a concern, and I'll go back to my data at the start of the war, uh, where interest rates are staying higher for longer than market would have previously expected. And we need to see a vast amount of refinancing of large parts of the CRE sector over this year, next year and beyond as well. So there is a real problem refinancing deals that were done let's say at zero, uh, 1%, very, very low levels as well. Now you've got to refinance at somewhere between 5 and 10% as well. So there is a real problem. But the fact of the matter is the data is not showing yet any form of sustained recovery. Uh, and I've just done enough work from various sources. And I've looked at the data coming out from uh, Savills in the United Kingdom, the likes of the CoStar, which is looking at the analytics, looking at uh, the national office vacancy rate, according to Moody's, uh, and just looking at other data as well and the fact of the matter is it is still really really stunningly tough out there let me give you one piece of data that comes from earlier this year the national office vacancy rate in the united states rose to a record breaking record breaking 19.6 percent in the fourth quarter of 2023 according to moody's analytics that is the largest quarterly increase since the first quarter of 2021 and larger than the 19.3 level reached only twice in the last 40 years the average pre-pandemic office vacancy rate in the united states was 16.8 percent so 
I hear what the gentleman's saying. It is a sign of optimism if they are seeing green shoots and they're seeing more deals done and more office vacancy. But to say that workers are coming back to the offices in droves, I think that may be true in part, yep. but I don't think it's true in the totality. You only have to go out and look around uh, your own vicinity, wherever you are. If you're in a big city conurbation, have a look at the deals being done. Have a look at the amount of new real estate that's still coming on board. And the Class A real estate, the best real estate is, is still moving as well. But the rest yep. of it, a lot of the older stock, which is less environmentally friendly, less workplace uh, friendly, there, there are still gaping holes uh, in that CRE activity. And, and I suppose just to your point as well, though, while interest rates are expected to come down this year, sectors still, as you said, in that tight spot because an estimated $1.2 trillion of U.S. commercial real estate debt is maturing in the next two years. It's a great stat, um, a terrifying stat. Shares of DoorDash fell in extended trade after the company posted mixed fourth quarter earnings. Revenue at the food delivery company rose 27% to $2.3 billion, beating estimates. But the company disappointed on its EPS, posting 39 cents per share compared with an estimate of 15 cents per share. Coinbase shares surged in extended trade after the crypto exchange reported a profit for the first time in two years. 14.3% high, you can see on the screen. Fourth quarter net income came in at $273 million on the back of a more than 50% jump in revenue. The CFO, Alicia Haas, told CNBC there's been positive momentum for cryptocurrencies recently as Bitcoin ETFs get approved. We've seen crypto come up across the board and it's largely been driven by the Bitcoin ETF excitement and then the momentum. So when we look at the ETF in particular, We've seen net $4 billion of inflows into Bitcoin ETFs. This makes it one of the fastest growing ETF categories that we've ever seen in the history of ETFs. Thank you for listening to Squawk Box Europe Express. For more market moving news, you can head to CNBC.com or join us again on the show with me, Steve Sedgwick and Karen Cho weekdays on CNBC.